Well, good morning, Church of 1122. Uh, it's good to see you this morning. I hope you brought your Bibles. We're going to be in Acts chapter 13. This is not a message about inviting your friends, because look around. You do a really good job of that. If you got invited here today, maybe you just misunderstood and you got here by accident. That's fine. We are, we're glad that you're here, too. Acts chapter 13, we are beginning a brand new series uh, called On the Road, kind of in honor of Willie. He turns 80 this year. If you don't know who Willie is, you need to meet Jesus. All right? All right. Uh, Ask your neighbor, they'll tell you. So <clears throat> what's going to happen in the next few chapters in Acts um, is that, uh, if you remember last week, Paul and Barnabas were set aside for a, a, a really like a mission trip, but they're just going to share the gospel everywhere they go because missions isn't about where you are, but who you are. And just in the next few chapters, I think they go to like 18 or 19 different stops, you know, kind of on their journey. And we're just going to follow along with them as they're on this journey because a lot like Pastor Ben said, we are all on this journey of pro- progressive sanctification. And some of you are just kind of checking God out, so we're so glad you're here. And some of you have been walking with the Lord for a long, long time. And the thing about a journey, going on a road trip, it's really important, is um, there's some things that you've got to know. You've got to know where you are, and you've got to know where you're going. And let's just be honest, ladies, or a lot of you, when we're driving around, you usually know where you are, but you don't know where you're going. You're just riding around. You're like, I've been here before. But guys, don't get too critical because you usually know where you're going, but you have no idea where you are, all right? And you're definitely not going to stop and ask. And you, you say stupid things like, well, I know we're lost, but we're making great time, all right? And so you just throttle down and go faster. And to continue to go faster in the wrong direction will not get you there sooner. And then if you have kids, you know what's most important to them. Are we there yet? Is that the dumbest question ever? I know I asked it when I was a kid, but when my kids ask it, I just go, yeah, we've been there for an hour, but I've just been circling around waiting on you to identify it. So uh, <clears throat> a lot of times with the Lord, though, we ask on, our, on this progressive sanctification, on this road as we mature in our relationship with Jesus, there's so many times that we're asking, are we there yet? And, and the answer is no. Like God is not finished with any of us. That's why, that's why this is a church for all people to deepen and discover their relationship with Jesus Christ. So we hope over this next series, some of you will discover that God loves you and wants to have a relationship with you. And then some of you who have been a Christian for a long, long time, you would continue to deepen that relationship and even discover brand new things about that relationship. And so we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 13, beginning, <clears throat> I think it is verse 13. So it says, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So put a little uh, mark in your Bible by that name, John. John's going to show up again in, John, I mean, in uh, Acts chapter 15, and we'll talk more about him. Uh, I think we'll be there in the middle of June, literally. Verse 14, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Now listen, here's the thing about the Bible. Um, the Bible's not a myth. Myths start out like in a land far away at a time long ago. This is what happened. But the Bible has specific places. And the reason it mentions these specific places is because specific people went there. This is just a, a historical account from Dr. Luke on what Paul and his crew were doing. And if you were in the first century and you were reading this, you were like, oh, I've been there before. Like if somebody were telling you a story and they said, look, you won't believe this. I was, I was in, in Palatka going to McClenny. And you're like, I know where this story's going. That's kind of how that goes, all right? And so, and if you're in your disciple group and somebody calls on you to read and you don't know how to pronounce something, you just say it with confidence, all right? And if somebody tries to tell you the right way to pronounce it, then you just rebuke their self-righteousness in the name of Jesus because nobody knows, all right? <laughs> And nor do I, so I just kind of make it up too. Here we go. 
So 14, so they went from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. Verse 15, and after the reading from the law and the prophets, which is just a, a Bible way to say, after a reading from the Old Testament, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, to Paul and his crew, saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So what's going to happen for the rest of this text through verse 43 is what we're going to study today. What's going to happen is the apostle Paul is going to lay out the gospel in this synagogue. Now, one of the things I want you to notice here is um, <clears throat> that, that Paul is not rude, nor is he offensive. But the brothers in the synagogue, they call Paul and his crew, they call him brother, and they invite him to share any encouraging word. And so sometimes, especially like in, you know, especially in the South and especially in evangelical world, sometimes people in their zeal to share the gospel, they can be so offensive in and of themselves that nobody ever actually hears the offensiveness of the gospel because they've already been offended by the person. And so when you come here to this church, uh, the, the gospel in and of itself will offend you. Because the truth of the gospel is that you are a wretched, black-hearted sinner. I mean, that's just offensive, right? You are a wretched, black-hearted sinner. And Christ died on the cross to save you from that and wants a relationship with you. So I understand that message is offensive. But what we don't want to do, we don't want to offend you with things that aren't the gospel. And what a shame when the church or when Christians are so offensive before you even get to the message of the cross. Now, now the, the gospel rightly contextualized will rightly offend, but we don't want people turning away from what's not even the gospel. So notice Paul here. He is exemplifying what we talked about last week, that his words, all of his words, they are full of grace and they're seasoned with salt. So he's, not, he's also not going to wimp out and not share the gospel with these people. He's not going to step up and say, I have an encouraging word for you. Everybody looks very nice today. Thank you very much. And just sit down. No, he uses this opportunity to share his faith, to share the gospel. But, but you'll see several times in here, he does it in a way that connects with people, not just shoves people away. It's very important. And he, he's smart enough to know the audience that he's speaking to. And we're going to see this as we look through several different sermons in the book of Acts. Um, depending on who Paul is talking to, he will start in different places. So here he is in a synagogue with men and women that know the Bible well. And so he's going to walk through the Old Testament. He's going to start with what they know. They know the Old Testament. He's going to start there. In several weeks from now, when we get to Acts 17... Um, he's going to be in this place called Athens, and it's a spiritual place, but it's very pagan, and they worship all these idols, and he's just going to start there. So Paul understands, because um, he, he, he learned it from Jesus, that God just sort of meets us exactly where we are and then takes us on this destination to get us to a new place. And that new place is a relationship with him, and so that's exactly what Paul does here. And so they invite him to share a word of encouragement, verse 16. And so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. So again, do you see how he is building bridges, not burning them? He doesn't just start with you wretched black-hearted sinner like I do. He starts with, uh, Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. <clears throat> and now he's going to walk through the entire Old Testament in about four or five verses. Now it's going to take me two and a half years to do Acts, but he's doing the entire Old Testament this quick. But he's a lot smarter than I am. Here we go, verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great 
during their stay in the land of Egypt. With uplifted arm, he led them out of it. Okay, that's Genesis and half of Exodus right there, those two lines. Now, the reason that he could run through that much, you know, a book and a half of the Bible, is because of the understanding that the people in the audience had. Everybody there knew um, how the world was created and, and those implications. And so all of the people knew. They knew about creation. They all believed, and they knew that God spoke into existence everything. And they knew about Adam and Eve. And they knew that at creation, God created all things good, and Adam and Eve were very good. And that God was not a God of a bunch of rules. In fact, there was only one thou shalt not. And the only one thou shalt not in the original creation was don't touch that particular tree and its fruit, okay? Don't eat of the fruit of that tree. Everything else, enjoy and have fun, okay? You can eat from the, from the fruit of all the other trees in the entire garden, but the only thou shalt not was don't touch that one. And so if you think that God is a God of a bunch of rules, then you don't know God because God only had one thou shalt not. He had a lot of thou shalts in the beginning. Um, like he, he, he created us in such a way that when Adam would work, because work came before the fall. Let me say that again to the 20-year-old. Work came before the fall. There was supposed to be this thing in us that when we worked and we created things and accomplished things, it would stir in us worship towards God. And when, we, and when Adam and Eve would eat, they would eat, you know, probably like grits and eggs or something holy like that. And they would eat that and it would stir in them worship towards God. You want to see if we serve a good God? God created Adam and Eve naked and gave them this command, be fruitful and multiply. That's Hebrew for bow, chicka, wow, wow. All right, that's how you pronounce that. That's our God. That's not the enemy coming in. It's not like God made Adam and Eve. He created them naked and then turned away and came back and said, no, sir, you get away from her. That is not what I made you for. No, he says, be fruitful and multiply. Husbands, can I get an amen? That's right, wives. You understand? We're just trying to be biblical, people trying to get it back to... That's crazy. All right, so, so that's how he created us. But then, but then the, the enemy comes on the scene. The devil comes in the form of a serpent, and he takes the word of God and twists it in his conversation with Eve, and he tricks her, and he said, did God really say if you touch that fruit, you'll die? He didn't say that. He said if you eat of it, but he just twists it a little bit, and then he twists it, and he says, he says you know what? The problem here is, is God's insecure, and he knows that if you eat of that, you won't die, but you'll be like him, and in that twist, Eve eats of the forbidden fruit. Now, when we read of that, most of us, especially guys, we think, well, Adam was probably off on a fishing trip or something, and then she messed it all up. But the Bible says that he is standing right there next to her. Literally, the Hebrew means elbow to elbow. And so this whole thing got started because of a lack of a husband's leadership in his home. Amen, wives? Uh, but don't do amen too much, all right? You still ate the apple. Okay, so it's still, it's still on you. <clears throat> And so, so at creation is created good, and then you get the fall, and then sin enters the world, and the original sin is that sin of rebellion. So when Adam and Eve are eating the forbidden fruit, essentially what they're saying to God is, um, God, I know better than you. I know you created this whole paradise thing, but I know how to live life better than you. But there's another, there's another sin that's in the garden that a lot of times we just kind of pass right over. And it's really the sin of religion. So the sin of rebellion is, I know you said don't eat of this, 
but I'm going to do it anyway because I know how to do life better than you. But then there's the sin of religion. And what Adam and Eve do is instead of running to their Heavenly Father when they have sinned, they run from their Heavenly Father and they say, hey, look, God, we don't need you. We don't need you. We've got fig leaves and we will cover our own sin and shame. And so they run and they hide and they try to clean themselves up in the garden. We are going to make ourselves presentable before you, God, with these lovely fig leaves. And they look ridiculous as every religious person looks when you try to um, present yourself righteous before God on your own. And so what does God do? God walks through the Garden of Eden and he calls out their name. From the beginning of time, he's been walking through the Garden of your life, calling out your name, and you've been running and trying to hide from a father that loves you. And he says, look, those fig leaves are just silly. And then he makes a covering for them, which means uh, something had to die, an animal, in order to give up its fur to cover over the sin and the shame of Adam and Eve shed blood. And it was a, it was prophetic of one that would shed his blood to cover our sin. And so the people there, they know this. And so when he picks up and says, the God of the people of Israel chose our fathers, then he's saying there was the, there was the creation, and there was the fall, and then there was the story of redemption that began with Father Abraham. And from Abraham, God created a nation, and out of that nation is going to come a Savior. And so he does, uh, he does Genesis and half of Exodus in that verse, verse 18. And for about 40 years, he, he put up with them in the wilderness. So he just covered Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 19. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. That's the book of Joshua. Verse 20. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges. Anybody want to guess what book that covers? <laughs> judges. All right. Good job, first row. Uh, until Samuel the prophet. So that's First Samuel. Verse 21. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. So that's 2 Samuel and 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles. Verse 22, and when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king. So we got 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and the book of Psalms. So we've moved all the way to like the middle of the Bible, the book of Psalms, that quick. But look what he says about David. He says, and when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said... I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. You see, David is this picture of the gospel. And this is what Paul is trying to do. Again, what Paul is trying to do is he's going to connect the dots for these Jewish folks to say, hey, you don't have to quit believing in the Bible that you've been reading all this time. It's actually pointing to Jesus. And David is like a lesser Jesus, okay? He is a picture of the gospel. You see, you know a lot about David. Even if you're brand new to Bible study, you've heard of David. This is like David and Goliath David. That same David grows up to be the greatest king uh, Israel's ever known, that guy. And so there's a lot of things about David. He plays the harp. Uh, he's a poet. He writes most of the Psalms. He is one of the greatest kings that, that Israel has ever seen. He's called a man after God's own heart. There's this one little problem with David, though. He was also an adulterer and a murderer. Yeah. So if you're honest about the Bible, and when it makes claims like this, like God says about David, yeah, that's my boy. That's a man after my own heart. And you go, well, God, help me understand this for a second. Because, I mean, I get that he wrote a book in the Bible, and I get that he was a king, and I get all of that. But what about the whole adulterer and murderer part of that? I mean, just imagine this. If, um, if David applied to be on staff at our church, 
And I'm sitting down interviewing him one-on-one. So, David, tell me a little about your ministry. And he goes, well, you know, I, I play the harp. And I'll be like, wow, that's cool. That's really cool. We don't have a harp in our band, so if you can wear skinnies, you could probably get in it, right? That'd be cool. Ring. <laughs> and I'm a poet. I don't know if you've read any of my work, but they're published here in the middle of your Bible, all right? So feel free to leave through and look at some of my greatest hits there. Um, and even though I'm a harp and a, and a poet, you know, you don't, don't pick on me about that because I also killed uh, lions and bears with my own hands, so I could rip you in half. And then uh, I, I'm administratively gifted. I grew up to be one of the greatest kings Israel ever saw. But there was this one little episode in my life where um, I had kind of had a hiccup in my ministry. It was, um, it was pre-internet, so you had to actually go out and find real people porn. You couldn't like, just do pictures. And so I'm walking around on my balcony one day, and I see Bathsheba bathing in her, in her bath down there. And instead of, you know, I didn't have any like, internet blockers or accountability or whatever, so I just was checking it out. And so I sent my boy, hey, go get Shawty and bring her up here, right? I'm going I'm to holler at her. And so he did, and she did, and then we did. And then, um, and so I committed adultery there. Uh, and, and so I was going to try to cover it up, but she was knocked up, so that, that was a problem. And so I went and got her husband, brought him home from war, and said, hey, bro, hook up with your wife, and then nobody would really know. But he wouldn't because he was like this, you know, man of character, and he said, as long as my soldiers are out fighting, then I can't do that. And I thought, what is wrong with you? So I killed him. And then, um, <clears throat> and then Nathan, the prophet of God, came to me and said, hey, man, you really messed up, and I repented. So that's my story. So, you know what I would say? Oh, well, God says you're a man after God's own heart. And I'm saying, uh, may God bless your ministry, but he ain't going to bless it here because we ain't hiring you, all right? You're out. And so how does God look at this man and say, you are a man after my own heart? By the way, when you uh, look at David's relationship with the Lord, it might make you feel a little bit better about your relationship with the Lord. Because some of you, some of you will come down front and talk to me and say, I've done something and the Lord could never forgive me. And imagine if you're one-on-one with David, and David would lean in and said, um, have you ever committed adultery with someone and then killed their spouse? Oh, no? Away from me, you are JV. Right? And just drink his coffee. Like, what? <laughs> and, and I don't know if some of you ever feel like your relationship with the Lord is a little bit on a roller coaster. There are some days where you feel super close to him, and some days you feel a million miles away. Uh, and I know this is church. This is not the place for you to feel like you can admit that. I hope you can at this church. But, but, you know, most Christians you bump into and you're like, how are you doing, brother? Oh, I'm just blessed. Praise God, I'm just blessed. And, and you think, well, I don't feel like that at all, but that's the only answer I ever get. Well, David might make you feel better about your relationship with God because if you do look through the book of Psalms, David's all over the place. In Psalm 23, he says, he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. You know what the one right before that is? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David, I think your meds are off, bro. What, like, this, this is like back-to-back songs on your mixtape. That, that's weird. Or sometimes in, in the very same psalm, Psalm 139 is one of my favorite psalms um, ever, all right? I love it. I'm a little sad it got hijacked by women's ministry because it's really for all of us. We've all been knit together in our mother's womb. None of us can flee his presence. For if we go to the heavens, he's there. If we go to the depths, he's there. But listen to David. Listen to how all over the place he is with his relationship with the Lord. If you, if you go Psalm 139, 14, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in the secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written 
every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet not one of them come to pass. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. I mean, can't you hear the violin soundtrack going behind that? I mean, that sounds like a close, intimate walk with the, with the Lord. And then the next verse. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them all my enemies. Oh, search me, O God, and know my heart. I'm not making this up. I'm not trying to downplay like mental illness, but this brother needed to see a counselor or something was going on here. He is all over the place. And, and God looks and goes, yep, that's my boy. That's David. He is a man after my own heart. Let me tell you the thing that David knew. David knew the grace of God. Because when David, David did ask God questions, but he never questioned who was God. I mean, he came to him and said, where are you, God? Where are you? I cry out to you, and you are not listening. And then the next day, he goes, better is one day in your house than a thousand days elsewhere. He's all over the place, and God just took him wherever he was. And so when Nathan, the prophet of God, comes to David and says, hey, man, you've really messed up and sinned against an almighty God, he writes Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God. And restore unto me the joy of my salvation. He knew the grace of God and he never worshipped another God. And he is a picture of the gospel. And what Paul is trying to do is help this Jewish audience begin to understand not just the law of Moses, but the grace of God demonstrated in the life of David. And he keeps going, verse 23. Of this man's offspring, that's David, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior Jesus, as he has promised. So we just went from Psalm to Christmas, okay? We're in Matthew chapter 1 now. Verse 24. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance. Now, John, this is John, Jesus' first cousin, John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. All the Jewish people believed that, that um, John was a prophet of God. And so he says, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel... And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. <clears throat> so what, um, what Paul is doing here is saying, Hey, listen, remember, again, he's speaking in a synagogue. He's saying, I want to connect for you the dots between creation all the way up to the proclamation of John the Baptist. That John the Baptist, remember that crazy guy with the crazy hair and the weird diet and the, and the weird clothes as he's standing outside of Jerusalem in the Jordan and he's baptizing people, screaming at people, saying, repent and be baptized, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And then one day, seemingly out of nowhere, he stops everything after he's baptizing people and this huge crowds are gathering around and he says, behold, the Lamb of God, who comes to take away the sin of all the world. And everybody looked around, and it was Jesus of Nazareth. And everybody thought, that's just a carpenter's kid. Who is he? And John's going, no, 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 no. This is the one 
that the prophets and the law were talking about. This is the one that Abraham and Noah and Moses and Isaac and Jacob and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel and all of those stories in the, in the Old Testament, all of them are pointing to this one. Every time uh, on the Day of Atonement for your whole life that you would take a goat to the temple to be sacrificed for the covering of your sin, behold, Not another Lamb of God, but the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. All of that that you've been reading um, in synagogue your entire life points to this man. His name is Jesus. And then Jesus walks in and gets in the water. And he's baptized and the heavens open up. And God the Father speaks out loud, Behold my Son in whom I am well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit descends on the Son like a dove. And so there it is, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit Three in one, our triune God, right there at his baptism. And so what Paul is saying is don't miss it, don't miss it, don't miss it. Connect the dots. This is the one, the Messiah, that we've been looking for since all the way back to Father Abraham. Verse 26, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. Again, notice still how how polite he is to them. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. To us has been sent the message of the salvation. In other words, listen, folks, if anybody should have known that the Son of God has shown up on the scene, it should have been us. You know why? Because God warned us with the law and the prophets. This thing that we've been studying our entire lives should have been a big warning sign that the Messiah, the Christ, that Jesus was on his way, and we missed it. Verse 27 For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. In other words, not only did the guys in Jerusalem miss that Jesus was among them, that God was among them, but they killed him. And shame on us, because God had prepared the way. God had told us in his word that he is coming. And so... Here's what it reminds me of. Last week at the 9 o'clock service, uh, we had a special guest. I don't know if you've heard, but Tim Tebow was here at the 9 o'clock service last week, right? I don't know. For some of you, that makes you very excited. And for some of us, it makes us want to tackle somebody. But that's fine. Okay? <clears throat> now, it, it, um, the reason it, that it, it didn't become a big deal is because nobody knew who's showing up. And so what Paul is saying, he said, it's like the Gentiles. They didn't know the Messiah was coming, so he showed up on the scene and left, and they didn't know, and nobody told them, so they didn't know. But we, as God's chosen people, as Israel, we should have known because we had a heads up. But the people in Jerusalem, shame on them because he was standing right there next to them, and they didn't even recognize it. Do you realize that's what's crazy about the Pharisees in the first century? That the Pharisees' job was to keep the nation of Israel so pure that when the Messiah, the Son of God, showed up, that they would be so pure and so uncluttered by the things of this world that they would be the first to recognize him. And yet, all throughout the Gospels, there are the most religious people of that day, and they're having lunch with God, and they don't even know he's in the room. It would be like if we had advertised Tebow's uh, visit to us last week and say, yo, he's coming, he's coming, he's going to be here at the 9 o'clock service. And then everybody showed up looking for him, and then after the service going, I didn't see him. I didn't see him. And I went, what are you talking about? He was in the back row, he had on a yellow shirt. And you're like, no. I looked throughout the entire audience, and there wasn't one guy with a helmet and a 15 jersey on in the whole place. So I'm sure he didn't show up. And so that's what happened to the Pharisees because the Son of God didn't show up dressed exactly the way they thought he would be, you know, ready for battle, but he just showed up ready to serve. 
and they didn't even know that he had been there. And so that's what Paul's saying to him. Hey, look, you missed him. And so I am here to connect the dots. I am here to, to make plain for you that God has sent his only son. And so now what he's going to do is he's going to lay out the gospel for him. He's just going to lay out what the gospel is. And one of the things that, that I find very interesting is that if you were to interview lots of folks today and say, tell me who you think Jesus is, many, many people would say, well, he is a good moral teacher. One of the things that you'll notice missing in every sermon in the early church are the teachings of Jesus. Paul, Peter, James, all the apostles and disciples, they never said, okay, everybody gather around and open your Bibles, and I'm going to tell you, here's four ways to improve your relationships, here's five ways to do money better, here's a parable about this, that, and the other. It was never about the teachings of Jesus. It was always about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The message of the early church was one message. It was the gospel. The gospel, the gospel. That was the only message they had. And so what Paul is going to do here is not say, let me teach you some things that the teacher Jesus taught to help you be a better version of you. But he's just going to lay out the gospel in its most basic form. Verse 28, it says, And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death. In other words, Jesus lived a perfect life. Now this is important. The gospel of Jesus does not start at the cross. It starts with his life. You see, what's going to happen is Jesus is going to live a perfect life. He's going to die a sinner's death. He's going to be buried in the grave and then resurrected on the third day. The Bible says that whoever puts their faith or trust or hope in Jesus, whoever surrenders to the lordship of Christ, then what happens at the cross, it's called substitutionary atonement. The theologians call it double imputation. In other words, um, our sin is imputed unto Jesus, and he felt the full wrath of an almighty God at the cross. He paid our sin debt at the cross, and we are imputed with his righteousness. Even though we don't deserve it, for any person that, that claims Christ as their Savior and Lord, that when God looks at you, he does not see your sinfulness, but he sees the righteousness or the perfected life of Jesus Christ imputed unto you. The best way I know, the easiest way I know to explain it is this. I've used this illustration before. It would be like if you were looking at your bank account and you weren't just broke, because broke means I got nothing. You were below broke. Broke means, well, I got some stuff, but I owe everybody else more than I got, right? That's worse than broke. Some of you are like, dear Lord, I just wish I was broke. You know, just I got nothing, but I don't owe anybody anything. So if I got something, at least I'd be on the positive. Well, some of you look at your bank account and your debt would be so severe, I mean, you're in the negative so far that you come to the realization to go, oh, no, if I got another job and worked every day for the rest of my life, I still couldn't even pay this debt off just to get back up to zero. What am I going to do? And then God, God were to look at you and say, hey, you just want to change accounts? You see, because in my account, I have trillions upon trillions upon trillions of dollars. And I tell you what, if you will put your faith in me, if, if you will call me your father, if you'll surrender to the lordship of Christ, then we'll just trade accounts. You want to take that deal? And you go, yeah, it's a great deal. And you trade accounts. It's what Martin Luther called the great exchange. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, For God made him who was without sin to be sin for us, that we might be made his righteousness. That he gets all of our debt that was our fault that we incurred, and we get all of his riches and inheritance that we had nothing to do with, and we just switched accounts. It's what happened at the cross, and it started because Christ earned that perfection by living that perfect life. 
And so it starts with the life of Christ. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. So there's the life of Christ and then there is the death of Christ. That the Son of God, the Almighty God-Man, 100% man and 100% God, after he, after he uh, shed his blood on the cross, that he died and was laid in a tomb. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead, and this is the resurrection. You see, while Christ's death on the cross pays for our sin, the resurrection purchases for you and me, um, it purchases our future. If Christ had merely died on the cross for our sin and stayed dead, well, that might forgive us of our sin, but it does not adopt us into the family of God. And so the resurrection conquers sin and death, and it gives me and you a hope and a future that we can walk in fullness of life with Christ, that the same Holy Spirit that brought Jesus out of the grave resides in every person that calls Jesus their Lord. And so it's the life, death, and resurrection. Verse 31. And for many days... He appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. In other words, what Paul wants them to know is that, is that this, this Christianity, this following Jesus, is not based on a belief system, but there are witnesses. Like it was an actual event. There was a man named Jesus, born of a virgin, claimed to be God, died on a cross, was dead and buried, and has been resurrected to new life. And we all saw him, and so we are here to tell you about it. Verse 32, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. If you're brave enough to write in your Bible, underline the words good news. Good news. You know what's not good news? This is not good news. God is good. You are bad. Try harder. That's the message I heard at church for a long, long time. God is good. You are bad. Try harder. See you next week. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is God is perfect, and you are a sinner, and he loves you so much. He loves you so much that though your sin must be judged, it was so bad somebody had to die that God died in your place so that you could be in that right relationship with him. And that is good news. It's good news. You see, the, the problem begins when, um, when Christians begin to, especially, I mean, you know, the longer you're in church, the, the more apt you are to do this, is when you put the gospel on hold and you say, well, okay, the good news of the gospel of Christ saved me, but now I've got to do something to earn my salvation. And if you're not careful, you will begin to create this little list of what a Christian is supposed to look like. And you say, well, a good Christian um, doesn't drink this, and a good Christian doesn't talk like that, and a good Christian doesn't watch these kind of movies, and a good Christian only listens to this kind of music. And it's amazing because that list of a good Christian always looks like you. You, you always go, well, well the, the sins that I struggle with, God's pretty cool with because he had to die for them. So he's okay with these sins, but the sins I don't struggle with, oh, my goodness, I'm not sure if you're even a Christian if you, if you do those things. Even the idea, if you've ever heard yourself use that kind of language like, well, um, I don't know if I'm a good Christian or he or she is a good Christian. There's no such thing as a good Christian. The idea, if you, if you say good Christian, then it's evidence that you don't really understand the gospel. Ephesians 2 says we were dead and we've been brought to life. It's not good or bad. It's, it's dead or alive. Because how do you measure that good Christian based on the words people say? I mean, I've heard people say, well, good Christians don't, don't cuss. Well, what, do you, what exactly do you mean by that? You see, because um, 
Because you could say all the right words and really curse people with some really kind words. If you're from the South, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If I brought my grandmother up here and she were to tell you, oh, bless your heart, that is a curse from the depths of hell. Do you understand that? (laughs) That means you are so dumb. You are so dumb. Bless your heart. But the words sound so good externally. And yet... So, so she could curse you with kind words, and I've, been, I've had people bless me with vulgar words. I mean, you know, the Church of 1122 is a church for all peoples, all kind of people here with no church background, and they don't realize what words you're supposed to say in here and whatnot. And so I've had people in this room after a sermon come down that aisle with tears in their eye and shake my hand and say, Pastor, that was an effing great sermon. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> I don't even know what to do with that. Yeah, yeah, vulgar words, and I'm not, I'm not pro f bombs. Okay, I would say cut, everybody might want to cut that out of their language. But the guy's blessing me, blessing me. I don't. What, I just, bro, let's pray, right? I just pray. That's what we do. I don't know what to do with that. And so, if you begin to measure based on the external, you go, oh, you got good Christian and bad Christian. And that's not the gospel. That's not the good news. The good news is that a Savior has been born to us for all people, all kind of people. And so what he's saying here is, is this is the good news, and Jesus has come in our midst. He says, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That word begotten is really big. It's kind of been lost in modern church. If if you know John 3.16, it's a really popular evangelical Bible verse, um, most modern translations translate it this way. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But the problem, the King James uh, says that he gave his only begotten son. And that word begotten, the King James, is a better translation for John 3.16. Now, I don't really study the, the King James very much, you know, because I can't get the these before thine except after thou. So I'm, I'm good with, like, common language, you know, just how regular people talk. But it's not just one and only. Jesus isn't just God's one and only son. I have one and only motorcycle, but it's not my only begotten motorcycle. Begotten means of the same essence. What John wants us to know, what Paul wants us to know, what David wants us to know is that cats beget cats and dogs beget dogs and God begets God. And so that Jesus is begotten. He's of the same essence of God. Verse 34. And again, remember, this is Paul making the case for the gospel. And he says, and as for the fact, as for the fact that he raised him from the dead. Again, Paul wants you to know, Paul wants this synagogue to know that he's speaking to, that Jesus being resurrected from the dead is not a belief system, but it's a fact that it's a historical event that this entire movement called the church is predicated upon. Not just, oh, you got to believe and you got to believe the same thing we believe, but the fact is that Jesus was born, claimed to be God, died on a cross, and three days later was resurrected from the grave. And there's a lot of facts, there's a lot of evidence that back up the fact of the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus. First of all, we find out in 1 Corinthians 15 that he appears in Jerusalem for 40 days to over 500 people. Now, and this wasn't years later, this was three days after everybody saw him dead. He's appearing in the same town that he was crucified in. And there was over 500 people that attested to it. Like, yeah, we saw, we saw a dead man walking around our town. 
just, just a week after they saw him dead. So this isn't like an Elvis sighting in Myrtle Beach. I think I've seen the king. No, this is Jesus who they just saw in the same town. And not only that, um, his tomb was never enshrined. This, this is pretty important. Every other major religious figure, when they would die, the place that they were buried, their tomb was enshrined. That means all the followers would go there and they would put candles and they would put flowers and they would put altars and they would worship there. And it would become like a, like a holy place for them. Well, everybody knew where Jesus' tomb was. It, was. it was in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. That's where it was. He borrowed that tomb. Yet, yet in the first century, none of his followers went to that place and put candles and cards and, and worship there. Why? Because nobody believed he was still in that tomb. Everybody in the first century knew that that was an empty tomb. And not only that, there are first century historians, extra biblical literature, this guy named Josephus, this Jewish historian, and he, um, and he, in his history of the first century, he writes about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And not only that, you remember Jesus was crucified by Rome, that Rome is trying to just get Jerusalem to relax, okay? And so they say, you know, there's this Jesus and all his disciples, so we'll just kill the leader, and that'll shut everybody up. And so now it gets even worse. I mean, just a few months after the apparent resurrection of Jesus, now that little group of about 120 has grown into at least 3,000 people. If they want to shut the church down, you know what Rome has to do? All they have to do while everybody's running around going, he's alive, he's alive. They go, no, he isn't. They just go get dead Jesus and bring dead Jesus to the center of Jerusalem. and go, there's your dead rabbi. And Christianity is over. It's over. We're all at the beach right now, right? Just getting sunburned. But instead, Jesus is alive, and so the church takes off. And so, so they begin to come up with, um, so you can't deny, you can't deny that there was Jesus' life. He did die on a cross, and everybody in the first century believed that he was alive again. So what do you begin to do with it? So that's where people begin to say, well, the disciples, the disciples must have come and stole his body. Really? You mean the same 11 guys, remember there were 12 and one guy killed himself, so he's out. So the 11 that are left, you mean the same 11 guys that when they arrested him, they ran and hid? You mean the same 11 guys that um, led by Peter and he couldn't even admit to a middle school girl that he knew who Jesus was? The same 11 guys that ran and hid in the upper room when Jesus was crucified? Those guys. Those guys all of a sudden got together and devised a plan, and they became the band of brothers that went in and, and somehow you know, put the swap moves on the Roman garrison that was guarding the tomb, rolled the tomb away, and stole Jesus' body. There's several problems with that. You know that every one of the disciples or the apostles were martyred, not for, what, not for their faith, not for what they believe. People believe all kind of crazy stuff, but for what they said they saw and they heard. They took James, the brother of Jesus, they took him up on the temple, they threw him off, he lands in the ground, breaks his legs, and he still won't recant. They said, you do whatever you want to us, but, but we cannot stop talking about what we have seen and heard. People will die for all kind of crazy beliefs, but people won't die for a lie. You really think the disciples got together and go, I got a plan. We're going to start a new religion, and, it, and it's going to kill us all. All right, everybody hands in, ready? No! Every other major world religion essentially starts this way. There's a leader, a teacher, and they come in and say, all right, here's the way to God, or here's the way we live, or here's our new uh, worldview, and lots of positive things there, but they all get together, and they teach a, a band of, of followers or disciples, and then when that main leader dies, it's up to that first generation of disciples to keep the dream alive. You, you know what our great and, and, and courageous spiritual forefathers did when our leader, Jesus, died? 
They didn't do the keep the dream alive rally. They did the keep me alive rally, and they all went and hid. And then Peter goes, I, I'm going fishing, okay? I don't know about this whole movement, and, and upon this rock I'll build my church. The fish are biting, I'm out. And they returned to their old lifestyle until they met up with the resurrected Jesus. And then everything changed. Everything changed. And so that's why uh, secular historians have to come up with some kind of theory to explain what happened in the first century. That there was a man named Jesus that claimed to be God, died on a cross, it's in public record in Roman history, and then three days later, hundreds of people are claiming to see him alive. So next year before Easter, just watch CNN or watch the History Channel, and you're going to see people get together and try to describe how this phenomenon called Jesus, how in the world did it come to be, and they will, they will, the best one they can come up with is called the swoon theory. You know what the swoon theory is? That Jesus did live, that Jesus did hang on the cross, but um, that Jesus, I literally read an article this week that said Jesus was really good at yoga, and so he could like slow down his heartbeat and his breathing. So I can't picture Jesus in the yoga pants, all right, but that's what they say. And that because of, after getting the skin ripped off his back from being flogged and nailed to a cross and being stabbed um, in the heart with a, with a spear, that he lost consciousness. And they took him down. They took his uh, comatose state body down from the cross. They wrapped him in about 100 pounds, pounds of burial cloth, and they put him in the tomb. And then after three days of being kind of in this damp, cold, dark tomb with no food, no water, and no medical attention, he wakes up three days later feeling awesome and um, takes the 100 pounds of burial cloth off of him. He removes the stone, slips by the Roman garrison guarding him, and goes on a seven-mile jog to Emmaus. That's the swoon theory. I mean, let's, let's be honest. All right, I played two hours of pickleball yesterday, which I think is like a retirement sport, and I had to eat an Advil sandwich just to preach this morning, so I'm pretty sure... You know, I've stumped my toe before, and then the next day, it looked like something was wrong in my hips because I couldn't walk right. I'm pretty sure that you don't get crucified, and four days later, you're just jogging around with your friends again, okay? But that's, I think it takes more faith to believe that kind of stuff than it takes to believe that God came back from the dead. Is it crazy to believe a person can be resurrected after three days? Yeah, if they're just a regular person. Well, what if, they, what if he really is who he claimed to be? And so Paul says, look, this, we're talking about fact here, not just belief. And he says, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken it in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says, also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one, that's Jesus, see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and he was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. In other words, as great as King David was, now he is dead and he is rotting in a grave. But Jesus is alive, and he's not in the tomb anymore. Verse 37. But he who God raised up did not see corruption. And then in the next two verses, he's going to tie it all up, and he's going to lay out not just the gospel. The gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now he's going to lay out the gospel invitation. So since it's fact that Christ came as God, died on a cross for our sin, he endured the full wrath of an almighty God and was resurrected from the grave then what are the implications for you and me? Here it is, verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers. In other words, everything that the Bible has talked about and everything that's happened in the last few years with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. 
And by him, everyone who believes is free from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. He takes it all the way back to the two sins in the garden. He said, listen, some of you are suffering from the sin of rebellion, that you have slapped the face of an almighty God, that you've said, God, I know how to do life better than you know how to do life, and you have sinned against God. Some of you are full of shame and guilt, and rightly so, because some of the things that you've done are just atrocious, but the good news is, is that Jesus steps in with the good news and says, hey, that shame is not for you to carry anymore. You give that to me. I've already carried it to the cross and paid the debt that you incurred. So that shame and that guilt and that condemnation, it's not for you to carry it anymore. You bend your knee to me. You surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. And I don't just try to make you a better version of you, but I forgive you of your sins. You are forgiven. Debt paid. It's like, it's like the wrath of God. I've heard it described this way. It's like the wrath of God is, a, is like this, this big wall of water. 10,000 miles high by 10,000 miles wide and that and the dam breaks and the wrath of God against sin comes rushing towards you and there you are. And just as that, that wrath comes barreling down your way, it's like the ground opens up and sucks up every last drop of that water. That's what Christ did on the cross for every sinner in this room. That the wrath of God was poured out and Christ bore it on his shoulders on that cross and he drunk, he drunk the cup of the wrath of God. Every last drop turned it over and slammed it down and said, it is finished for our forgiveness. That's why Romans 8 chapter 1 can say, therefore now there is no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. So some of you, some of you walked in here today with your head down and one eye up. I mean, you're thinking like lightning bolts, and if only people only knew the things I've done, God knows. And there's nothing that you could have done that could, that could expel you from the love of God. There is no sin, no rebelliousness that is so bad that you were disqualified for being called his son. And today, the gospel offers you forgiveness. It's the sin of rebellion eating the forbidden fruit. But then on the other side, it's not just the sin of rebellion. Because let me tell you, the other sin is not rebellion, it's religion. Because some of you go, um, all right, Jesus, thanks for dying on the cross for me, but <clears throat> I don't need you. I mean, I appreciate you dying for sinners, but, you know, I've got, my, I've got my sin covered. So thanks for the cross, but it's not just the cross that's enough. I'm going to clean this up a little bit, too. I'm going to attend church enough, and I'm going to read my Bible enough, and I'm going to do enough good things that you're going to owe me. I'm going to be so good that, that not only are you going to let me into heaven, you're going to brag that, that I, I'm up there with you. And it's the sin of religion. It's the sin of I'm going to do better and try harder so that God will love me. And so Paul says, Paul says, by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses, that you can't be good enough. And you need the freedom from that legalism and that religion. Because you've, you've been down that road for a while and it is exhausting. It is exhausting. You are trying to be a better version of yourself and you know you don't have it in you. Because you continuously break the pr same promises that you make to God over and over and over. Or you can control the external. I mean, you can quit cussing and quit drinking and quit whatever. You can control the external, but what do you do about your heart? What do you do about the lust and the jealousy? And what do you do about the pride and the self-righteousness? 
What do you do with that thing you did today when you walked in and somebody didn't look the way you look and they weren't dressed the way you think you ought to be for tri- be dressed for church and that thing in you made you feel better than them? Your religion can't cure that. And so you don't need rebelliousness. God forbid you walk in this cheap grace and say, well, God's going to forgive me anyway because I'll do whatever I want. Hey, that's just a different form of rebelliousness. If that's what you're walking in, you got a lordship issue. You don't willingly slap the face of the one that died for you and call it grace. But you also don't work in the, I'll clean myself up and make myself presentable to him. You don't need rebellion and you don't need religion. You need Jesus. And Jesus came and shed his blood on the cross and died for you and died for me and was resurrected three days later to provide for us forgiveness, forgiveness for our sins and freedom that we do not live under the law. And so this is the message that Paul shares. And then he says, beware, therefore. That's what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. In other words, there's some of you here that hear the gospel and go, I don't need that. Verse 42, and as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. In other words, there were men and women in that moment that that quit going down the road of rebellion and also quit going down the road of religion and surrendered their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You see, here's the gospel. Is that forgiveness and freedom is only found in the grace of Jesus. Freedom and forgiveness are only found in the grace of Jesus. No matter what you've done, you can be forgiven. And you'll never be free to walk with him as long as you are under the law of trying to be good enough. And so some of you, for the very first time, need to get off the religion train and get off the rebellion train and surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. And then begin to walk in that forgiveness and in that freedom that he purchased for you on the cross. You bow your heads right where you are. If that's you this morning and you are ready to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, would you raise your hand right where you are? Would you say, God, here I am. I want to claim you as my Lord. I've been in charge of my life before. And some of you have leaned towards that religion. You've said, God, I've tried to clean myself up and I'm sick of it. I can't do it. And I surrender it to you. And then others of you have just been, been living out of control in addiction, in rebellion, and you say, Father, I just want to come home. I want to come home to a good God. If that's you, you raise your hand. And if you've got your hand up in this place and you just talk to God, you talk to your Heavenly Father, there's no magic prayer. This isn't witchcraft. It's not an incantation. You repeat after me and you've got the secret way in. But God, your Father, knows your heart. And the Bible says that if you... If you call on the name of the Lord, that you'll be saved. So just those of you with your hand up, you pray to God. You admit you admit that, that you are repenting from either religion or rebellion. That you believe in the sufficiency of what Christ did on the cross to purchase you, to rescue you. And you confess Christ as your Lord. Dear Father in heaven, good and gracious God, Lord, I thank you that there is salvation in this place. That in this very moment right now, God, that in Jacksonville, Florida, in this very moment, there are... There are blind people who can see. God, that scales are falling off. And there are dead people who are being brought to life. God, I pray that the gospel would saturate the people that don't yet believe in you. God, that they would know that there is nothing they've done so bad that they can't be forgiven. And God, I pray that the gospel would saturate church folks in here, God. 
that we would know there is nothing we can do um, to perform our way into heaven. But Christ, what you performed on the cross demonstrates your love for us. God, may this be a gospel-centered, gospel-saturated church. God, may we see ourselves the way you see us. May we see other people the way you see uh, see them through the lens of the gospel. And so, Lord, I pray, I pray with everything I'm made of, Holy Spirit, that you would move in this place and that we could walk in forgiveness and freedom, not because we deserve it, but because you have purchased it for us. We pray it in the good, strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hey, would you please stand up where you are? We respond to the gospel here. God initiates. We respond. We respond by singing the gospel. We're going to sing a gospel song together. We respond by bringing our tithes and offerings to the offering boxes around. And we respond by bending our knee at the altar and laying on the altar whatever it is, whatever business you need to do between you and your heavenly father. Let us respond.